0: The purpose of John's gospel is to show you that Jesus is the only Savior and that through believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. Let's open our Bibles to the gospel of John, particularly we'll be in John chapter 17. That is our text this morning. We'll be looking at the entire chapter of John 17. If if you need a Bible or if you're using one of the blue Bibles from a chair near you, you'll find that. Text on page 903. Again, that's page 903. And we also want you to know that if you don't have a Bible, that blue Bible is our gift for you. We can think of no better gift to give you than the Word of God. And while you're turning to John chapter 17, I want to chart our course for a bit. After this week, Lord willing, as Caleb's announced, we begin our Advent series. Our theme for this year's Advent is Christ, our priest, the only. Mediator. We'll take the next five weeks to look at the book of Hebrews as the author of Hebrews shows us Jesus fulfilling the role and office of priest. Christians have historically identified Jesus as fulfilling three offices, prophet, priest, and king. In the last two years, around Christmas time, during Advent, we have considered Christ our king, and then last year, Christ our prophet. And this year, we're going to round out the trilogy, looking at Christ, our priest. But why? Can't we just keep going through John's gospel? Can't we just celebrate Christmas that way? We certainly could, and we would suffer nothing for it. But as is our practice, given the opportunity of the season and the calendar, we take the Sundays in December to drill down on specifics about our Savior in hopes that our hearts are better caused to rejoice in his incarnation. We believe with the Apostle Paul that there are unsearchable riches in the person and work of Jesus. And so our Advent celebrations, even though they're a break from our normal routine, are an expression of that belief that every Lord's Day as we look to Jesus, we have special seasons where we can focus in on different aspects of his glory and the riches of Jesus Christ. So Lord willing, next week, this room will look different in terms of decor. The texts we are going to study will be different. The songs we sing will be festive. Yet, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to turn our eyes to Jesus, who was born, in order that he might die and rise again to save us from our sin. And as the providential hand of God would have it, we get a bit of of a prelude to our Advent series, to Christ our priest in our text this morning, as Jesus actually is fulfilling the role of priest as he intercedes to the Father on behalf of his disciples. Here, the mediator is before us, mediating for us as our great high priest. So, the title of this sermon is Hearing Jesus Pray. So let's listen to him pray as we read this text together this morning. your word is truth as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world and for their sake i consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth i do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is Praying for me. Maybe you've heard that quote from Robert Murray McShane before. The statement rings with a reality of wonder in the heart of a Christian because though we cannot hear Christ praying in the next room, it is nonetheless true that Christ prays for us. Consider that. Jesus prays for you. Listen to this quote from Louis Burkhoff, who wrote, It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds, and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious And against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it, he is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. You know, I think we tend to take it a bit lightly when someone offers to us the gift of praying for us, or even when they stop to pray with us perhaps like me you're guilty of many times over saying I'll be praying for you only to forget to pray or neglect to pray as we said we would isn't it glorious that Jesus doesn't do that I mean isn't it great that he never says I'll pray for you and then forgets or neglects to do it. No, dear saint, our Lord Jesus could no more forget to pray for us than he could forget to breathe. The life of Jesus is one marked with prayer, and we see so many examples of Jesus praying. Matthew fourteen twenty three. We read, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Matthew nineteen thirteen. We read, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Luke 5.16 But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Mark 1.35 And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Matthew 26.36 Perhaps most memorably to us, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there to pray. Yet for all of these references of Jesus praying, we have less recorded of his actual prayers, meaning the words that he said. We actually did hear him pray in John chapter 11. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I mean, even in the statement, Jesus is saying, I'm praying out loud, not because I need to, but because the crowd needs to hear me pray. This is for their benefit that I'm praying out loud. But this prayer that we just read, well, there's none like it in the gospel accounts. And it is a gift. Because if you were curious, maybe you thought, I wonder what it sounded like to hear Jesus pray. We have it right here. If you wonder the types of prayers Jesus uttered, you don't have to wonder because we have some evidence of what it was right here in this prayer. Rich in its depth and glory, and yet even understandable for us as we read along the text with the gospel author, John. Maybe you know the name, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's the late London pastor. He preached a 48-sermon series on this chapter to his church titled, The Assurance of Our Salvation. He said this in the opening sermon. If we had nothing but John 17, we would surely have more than enough to sustain us. Because here our Lord has given us insight into our whole position and into everything that is of importance and value to us while we are here in this world and time. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, this prayer of Jesus is a spiritual feast. And so realizing that, My goal for our time already and moving forward is twofold. First, I am hoping to whet your appetite to read and reread and study this prayer. To listen to Jesus pray just so that you simply marvel at the love of our Savior. Secondly, I want you to see the priorities in Jesus' prayer that you might learn to pray more like Jesus. This prayer is not a how-to prayer guide. Don't misunderstand me here. John did not intend it to be so. Parts of this prayer are only Christ's, meaning he is God's son, the eternal word, and the second person of the Trinity. So parts of this prayer are not ours to pray, yet the whole prayer is instructive and comforting to us do you remember where we've been over the recent weeks and months john has shown us how jesus comforted his troubled disciples by teaching them by giving them promises by helping them and now we see john giving us even more of jesus's comforting words to the disciple except these words are uttered by jesus to the father on behalf of his disciples he is praying for them Friends, this prayer is as instructive as it is comforting. So, Jesus doesn't stop teaching the disciples here when he starts praying for them. No, no, no. As he prays for them, he is teaching them, he is shaping them, he is discipling them. And so, Jesus' prayer has three parts. Maybe you noticed the transitions, and so it's going to be our pattern this morning to just follow the three parts with the rest of our time. He prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, and he prays for the church. Jesus prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, and he prays for the church. That's how we're going to follow this text the rest of our time this morning. First, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 1 through 5, the Son of God lifts his eyes to his heavenly Father and begins to praise. And praise, and, and ultimately, what, what is really just one petition, just one request, that the Father would glorify the Son. Now, because we've spent more than a year in John's Gospel together, we have seen John's recurring themes as he wrote this Gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Two of them kind of pop out in these first five verses that we see. John regularly spoke, shows us how Jesus spoke of his hour, the hour of Jesus. The hour had not yet come and the hour had come. And then often Jesus spoke of his glorification. And so let's look at those two things. First, the hour of Jesus. So first of the much, for, for much of the first half of the gospel, we hear Jesus actually telling many different people, my hour has not yet come. Most famously, probably in John chapter two to his mother during the wetter, wedding at Cana. And as we've walked through the gospel, there is this tension that Jesus is constantly telling people, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And you begin to wonder, well, what is this hour? And when will it come? Well, now as Jesus prays, he states, Father, the hour has come. That's not the first time he's noted that the hour has come. He's actually already told us this in the end of, excuse me, the middle of chapter 12 and then in the beginning of chapter 13. He had previously said the hour had come and the timing of those chapters, even though they've been a bit far from where we are right here because we've taken a walk slowly through these chapters. They're only a matter of days from this moment right here. Jesus' arrival at this Passover in Jerusalem was the hour that his whole life had proceeded towards. Because in this Passover celebration, he himself is going to fulfill John the Baptist's prophetic word from John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The hour Jesus had been pointing to with every not yet, not yet, not yet was the hour when he would complete the work of redemption through his own death, resurrection, and ascension. And now the opening words of this prayer remind us of what he said when the Greeks came seeking him. And John recorded in in chapter 13, verse 1, that Jesus knew the hour had come. But that does offer us a question. Who set the time of this hour? Well, his father. Jesus was sent by God. That much is evident from this prayer and so many statements in John's gospel. And here it is the hour when he would be glorified was the father's will and purpose and plan being accomplished. It's the sovereignty of God. The Lord has set the hour. And notice that Jesus in his prayer, he doesn't rail against the sovereignty of God, nor is he panicked in the face of suffering. He doesn't even become fatalistic, saying, well, God is sovereign and in control. So whatever he wants is what he's going to do. Whatever, Father. What Jesus did was pray. He knew and believed that the Father was in complete control of what was happening. Instead of resignation, the Lord Jesus prays to his heavenly Father. You see, friends, a strong belief in God's sovereign control of all things does not relieve us from praying. But rather, if we look at Jesus, we see that the more we understand the sovereign work of the Father, the more we are prompted to pray all the more. This is one of those moments where We can learn from Christ here. Certainly, though we are not Jesus, the Son of God, we are his disciples by faith. And God is sovereign, and his sovereignty, rather than pushing us away from him as our heavenly Father, can actually serve to bring us to him in prayer as we seek his will, just as it did with our Lord Jesus. It is a faithless statement to say, God is sovereign, so it is what it is, whatever. It is a faithful prayer to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus knows his hour has come, and he acknowledges that in the prayer, but he also prays for glory. He prays for the Father to glorify him and that he would glorify the Father. And we've come across this before, that the Father is glorified in Jesus as Jesus accomplishes the work that he was sent to accomplish. And that the Father was actually glorifying Jesus as Jesus completed the work. Now, maybe you remember, we've looked at this before. The term glory is a rich term. And John has used the word glorify in a couple ways that help us grasp. What is it it that he's talking about right here? When Jesus prays that the Father would glorify him and that he would glorify the Father, he is using the term to mean magnify or esteem. Jesus prays that the Father would magnify him as he magnifies the Father. And Jesus also prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So he he prays that he would magnify, that he would glorify the Father. And then he says, I have glorified you in what I've accomplished. We actually saw this in chapter 12. We saw that Jesus specifically tied being glorified to his death and resurrection and ascension to the Father. We've talked a lot about how John loves to use irony in his gospel. He does it on purpose. And the greatest display of irony that John uses is the brutal murder of Jesus that is actually his glorification. That his lifting up, his exaltation would be on a cross, That the exaltation would include the horror of his execution. And yet, it is the very death of Jesus that was the work of the Father had sent him to do. That was how he was glorified. And Jesus also prays in that that final verse that his glorification on the cross would be actually a gateway. A gateway to the glory that he had known with the Father before the world existed. He's returning to the presence of his heavenly Father, having finished every work that he was sent to accomplish, to take up again his rightful place with the Father. Jesus stares down the cross, enduring the shame for the joy that was before him in the presence of his heavenly Father we actually get a hint of where this prayer is going in verse 3 when he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, we've rehearsed the purpose of John's gospel every Sunday before we start studying it. It's important that you know that when we talk about eternal life, and when John talks about eternal life, he doesn't just mean unending heartbeats. He means knowing Jesus. Not just facts about him, but knowing the kind of fellowship and relationship that extends into eternity, unbroken in the presence of God. Which you and I receive, not due to the size of our faith, nor the strength of our hands, but due to the size and strength of our God. Which becomes much clearer in the second portion of Jesus' prayer, where Jesus prays for his disciples. Jesus prays for his disciples. So verses 6 through 19, Jesus focuses his prayer to the Father upon these trouble-hearted disciples. And if you, if you notice, maybe if you, were, if you were thinking about this, or if you read it this week, how and what he prays is not shocking because he prays so much in a theme of the Father's preservation. It just runs all through this section of prayer. And as I was reflecting on this, it strikes me of how, how kind Jesus is in doing this. The disciples with him in their hearing, listen to Jesus, ask the Father to uphold them. I mean, they have undoubtedly heard Jesus pray many times. They have seen the Father answer the Son time and time again. They have grown as they have followed their rabbi, And they are going to realize, they don't realize it right in this moment, but they are going to realize that on the cusp of unimaginable suffering and pain, Jesus is asking the Father to preserve them, even as he isn't. I can only only imagine what the memory of that moment meant to them as they proceeded to take the gospel to the world with confidence that Jesus had asked the Father to preserve them. So I want to show you a list of things that Jesus asks the Father to preserve. We're going to move quickly. Like I said, we're just wetting the appetite. This is like you get to go and sample the buffet. You need to go back and eat some more later. First, he prays that the Father would preserve their faith. Jesus acknowledges the faith of his disciples in verse 6. Look, he notes, they have kept your word. And the word, that that phrase, keeping their word, is a synonym for belief. And then in verse 8, he prays, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus established that these disciples, these troubled hearted disciples, these broken misfits, they're actually disciples. Their flaws have not turned Jesus away. Their failures have not negated their place as Jesus' disciples. No, they are still his. And he prays in verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus asks the Father to preserve their faith, to preserve the faith of these disciples. The, again, again, friends, their security, the security of their faith was not dependent upon their strength. It was dependent upon God's strength. Eternal life isn't dependent upon their strength, their ability to provide it for themselves. No, it's based on the promise and power of God. Jesus prays that their faith would be preserved. Second, he prays that the Father would preserve their joy. Maybe you remember last week how the disciples were told by Jesus they would have sorrow, deep sorrow, but that sorrow would turn to joy. Yet let's be honest, we know from the, the, the book of Acts and further in the New Testament, a lifelong following of Jesus means living in a world with lots of threats to joy. I mean, Jesus has just told them uh, that the world will hate you and the world will persecute you. And those things can threaten joy. And so Jesus prays for their joy in verse 13. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves consider that jesus faced far more humiliation suffering hatred persecution and hostility than any human ever had and ever will and yet our lord jesus lived with joy is that not evident when we read the gospels he was not morose people wanted to be around him he was a joyful person it was his joy to serve the Father. And here he prays that the disciples would share and have that same joy in themselves. That they would have that joy and that it would, the Lord would preserve it until they entered into his presence. For a double dose of Martin Lloyd-Jones today, he famously quipped, a joyless disciple is an oxymoron. Church, joy is not the absence of sorrow. Don't misunderstand me here. It's not the absence of sadness. It's not even the absence of depression. But Christ-like joy is that hope in the midst of those pains. It's the awareness that this life for us who follow Jesus is as bad as it's ever going to get. Because when we die, we get Jesus forever. To be His, in His presence, where we are told in Psalm 16, there is fullness of joy forevermore. He also prays that the Father would preserve their unity. In verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we Our are, are one. Jesus prays that the fellowship and the communion between these disciples would actually resemble the communion that he enjoyed with the Father. These men were flawed sinners. There would be rifts and offenses that could threaten to disunify them. Yet what Jesus is praying here for us to see is that though sin fractures, the gospel preserves and restores. So the Lord prays that the Father would preserve their joy and their faith, and he prays that he would preserve their unity. It's easy to take offense. It is easy to allow a root of separation to thrive. But Jesus prays that no such separation would mark these disciples. But rather, he prays that the Father would preserve their unity as they carried out the mission of taking the gospel The world. He also prays that the Father would preserve their testimony. In verse 9, Jesus prays, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Now, just to clarify, this is not Jesus being anti evangelistic, but he's actually seeking God's preserving grace for these disciples as they engage in proclaiming the gospel. So look at verse 15. He writes, or Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Then look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The disciples would remain in the world. Why? To bear witness to Jesus. So in one sense, Jesus is praying for the world, but not that the Father would preserve the world in all of its God-hating ways. No, he's praying that the Lord would accomplish his redeeming work as he called his own out of the world to be his children through the gospel preaching of these disciples. Jesus has no desire to pray that the world would continue in rebellion. He does pray that his people would hear the gospel and respond and that these disciples would go into the world with that gospel proclamation. The final thing that I'm going to draw attention to in his preserving here is that he prays that the Father would preserve their growth. Look at verse 17. Jesus prays a simple prayer that is one we ought to, I think, make use of ourselves. He prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Look at verse 19 too. He prays, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see, Jesus is charting the course for their growth as disciples here. He prays that the Lord is going to preserve that growth. The word sanctification is a term of growing. It's growing in likeness, in holiness, in being set apart. The disciples would grow apart from the world, And they would grow more like Jesus. And this ragtag group of misfits would do this as they devoted themselves to God's word, Specifically the Old Testament scriptures and the words of Jesus. As they did this, they would be sanctified. That is set apart. They're going to look more like Jesus. And the... The Lord Jesus prays that the Father would preserve this growing work in them. Again, what a gift that their rabbi on the eve of his return to the Father by way of execution and resurrection cares for these broken hearted disciples by praying for them to be preserved by their heavenly Father. And how glorious of Jesus, not only to, to seek the Lord's preserving grace for his disciples, but he's teaching them as he's praying for them. He's teaching them how to pray as he prays for them. He prays. And think think about as they reflected on Jesus' words, that how they would better grasp the priorities that they themselves should have in prayer. To believe to grow, to be joyful, to be united, to bear witness to Jesus. Jesus not only prayed for them, he was teaching them how, to, how and what to pray for themselves. And while this prayer is specifically for these first disciples, we certainly benefit from this prayer as well, don't we? We see that Jesus prayed in a way that comforted and instructed his disciples, and it comforts and instructs us as well. We are helped by Jesus in this prayer. We see what Jesus prayed for his disciples, and we know that this prayer did not expire with the first generation of disciples. And we know that because these same themes are repeated and more in the final section of the prayer where Jesus prays for the church. Jesus prays for the church. Now, I'm using the word church here in the universal sense. Jesus is praying for all who had come to faith through the gospel preached by these apostles all throughout history and in every age, which includes every Christian in this room here today. You didn't arrive here apart from the first preaching of Jesus and the apostles all the way down until someone gave you the gospel. What a thought to stop and ponder church, Jesus prays for us. He prays for us. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power prays for you. The one who never prays wrong, selfish prayers, but always right, prays for you. And, and And he didn't just pray once at one moment. We're going to see in the coming weeks in our Advent series that he lives in glory, even now interceding to the Father on our behalf. Yet just consider with me this morning, just think that long before you existed, long before your first breath, your Savior Savior prayed for you. I mean, what a humbling and comforting thought this morning. You know, it it would be a, a colossal mistake to look past the obvious here, right? The fact that he prays for those who would come to faith through the preaching of these apostles assumes that the Father will preserve the apostles and their preaching and that they will meet success in their gospel preaching. Jesus knows his prayer will be answered. Otherwise, there would be no point in praying for a future generation of believers. It wouldn't make any sense. But he knows his Father's will. And he prays, and his praying was not wishful thinking, but it was a settled confidence and awareness that the Father heard his prayer and would answer his prayer. So he prays further for us, knowing that the apostles would be preserved, that they would proclaim the gospel, and he knows that you would hear it one day and believe it. In church, what does he pray? We see again that he prays for unity. The word one Comes up in this last section of the prayer more than it does any other part of the prayer. That they would be one, I and me, you and them. There's this picture of unity. Like the first disciples, sin fractures unity. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ our Lord, preserves and restores so that the Lord prays, the Lord Jesus prays that his church would be marked by unity in him. That the unity of the church, the universal church, would resemble the unity of God himself eternally one, existing in three persons. Now, you may be tempted to think, well, that failed. Right? Strike one, Jesus. Maybe you'd say, have you heard of denominations? Church splits. Jesus, have you been on Twitter lately? I assume not in the way we might think, just that he knows every thought and intention of every person's heart. I mean, it is true that we're in a time where the vicious rhetoric between Christians seems at an all time high. And if I'm honest, it is more disheartening than I have ever witnessed in my life. But here's what I would argue. I would argue that the church, the true church, where the gospel is rightly and clearly preached, is still unified. You see, unity isn't the absence of disagreement. No, it is among the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's true. There's no disagreement and conflict within the persons of God. But on earth, in the world, where we are not yet fully sanctified nor fully glorified, we are still sinners. And conflict and disagreements should be expected, not surprising. And church, there is unity even where there is disagreement. That's why we pray. One thing we do in in our prayer petition is pray for other churches in our area, even those churches that we would not agree with on every theological point. But we know they preach the same gospel and the same Savior. I don't think this prayer of Jesus is a fail. Rather, I think we live in a fallen world where the kingdom of God is being built and where the Lord Jesus is front and center. I do believe there is real supernatural unity in him and in him alone. Church, you need to know we are one with every Christian from every age because of our unity in Christ. Our unity is in God, and so as Jesus prayed that we would be one, so is every true church and every true Christian one from every age. But he also prays that we would know divine love. Kind of bubbles up in the end of this prayer, and it's awesome. I mean, none of us get to experience the love the same way that these first disciples did. They were in the very presence of the incarnate Jesus. And they interacted with him on a day-to-day basis in a way that we did not interact with him. And the Lord actually understands the difference and so prays in verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Then in verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now let's assemble the puzzle pieces here for a minute. He has just prepared these disciples for chapters for a coming helper who was with them and would be in them. And this helper, the Holy Spirit, would be as Christ to them. Yet he would be in them. And now Jesus takes that reality, that promise that he's been making to the disciples and says it's for us too. We get in on it. Christ is in us. And in Christ, and as we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we know the love of the Father. And not just any love, No, the very love with which God loved his son is the love that he lavishly pours into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And what's more is that our faith in Christ comes from Christ. When we hear and believe the gospel, it is the person of Jesus that beckons us to return to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is praying when he says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. And to know God through Jesus is to know a love that is inexpressibly rich, that is glorious. It is a feast of love for our love-starved and love-hungry souls. Jesus prays that we would experience divine love, and he shows us that we do in him and in him alone. And he also prays that we would be with him. He prays that we would be in the very presence of Christ, where he is. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Where is Jesus going? When he prays this, where is he going? He's returning to the glory he had with the Father before the world began. Beloved church, this is where we will be. This eternal life of knowing God, it is dwelling in the presence of the one who took on flesh to dwell among us. It is to see the glory of God, no longer hindered by sin, fear, or doubt, but with unveiled faces and unstained hearts, to behold the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. That's where we'll go. Like those first disciples... Jesus prays for our preservation. Just as he preserved the first disciples, we can know that his every prayer for us is met with a yes from the Heavenly Father. On the heels of a week where we mark the providence of God by thanking him, can we not also be thankful that we can hear Jesus pray? What a glorious treasure is given to us in this prayer. How glorious is our God beloved saints. But let's think about maybe more practically. We've we've seen big things on the lips, or we've heard big things from the lips of Jesus this morning. We've received a big vision of the glory of God, but how, how might we apply this practically? Maybe even thinking about our own prayers. First of all, we can take comfort and courage. Hearing Jesus pray this morning is an opportunity for every believer here to receive the comfort and the courage with the awareness that Jesus prays for us. Like we heard McShane say at the beginning, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He's praying for you. Take the comfort and courage offered to you in this precious reality. We can join Jesus in praying for the glory of God in Christ to be revealed. We can, in our prayers, extol the Lord as we praise his glorious grace to us in Christ. We can pray that the Father would glorify the Son and that he would do it through us. That's a prayer the Lord loves to answer. Or maybe out of all the themes we kind of picked out of this prayer, you can take one of these themes of Jesus' prayer for the disciples or for the church and use that to guide your prayer through the membership directory this week. Pray that the Father would preserve your fellow members' joy. Or pray that the Father would preserve your fellow members' testimony to Jesus this week. Or pray that the Father would preserve one another's faith in him. one final final practical application, as Jesus prays for unity, we actually know that he's given us a sign to demonstrate our unity and our oneness in the Lord's Supper. When Christians partake of the bread and the cup, we demonstrate our shared belief in Jesus Christ as the only Savior who gives us eternal life through believing in him. So if you're not a Christian this morning, As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we would ask you not to participate in the Lord's Supper because you aren't united to Jesus by faith and you aren't united to other Christians by Jesus. You see, the Supper is a proclamation that we are united in Christ alone. And if you're not a believer, this table isn't a place of unity for you. In fact, it's a place of disunity because to participate in it would be a farce. We're glad that you're here if you're not a Christian. For sure we are glad that you're here, but we would ask you not to participate in the supper if you're not a believer in Jesus. It would be an empty and dangerous thing for you to do. For the Lord warns those who eat and drink apart from Christ will endure judgment, and we do not desire judgment for you. We desire blessing. So instead, if you're not a Christian, why not spend these next few minutes praying? Praying that the Lord would reveal himself to you that he would speak through his word and his people to give you new life in him. If you are here and you have trusted in Christ as the only Savior, you have abandoned all hope of self-saving, you have turned from your sin and believed in Jesus and received his promised forgiveness, this is a place where you can reaffirm your trust in Christ with other Christians. This table displays our unity. If you are in Christ, we encourage you to take, eat, and drink. You don't have to be perfect to partake. If that's true, no one could eat or drink anything from this table. But if you have trusted in Christ, our perfect Savior, then this is a meal for you. Finally, perhaps you're here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, yet you know your life doesn't line up with that claim. It's not that you struggle with sin. Every Christian struggles with sin, but you know that you've stopped struggling against sin altogether. In fact, you're bathing in it. Your affections for Christ are less than your love of your chosen sin. If you're living in unrepentant sin, we'd encourage you not to take the supper. Again, there is no unity for you in taking the supper at this point. You can't be unified in taking the supper while running away from Jesus. This table is for sinners running to Jesus, not running from him. So if you're running away from Jesus and walking in sin, we would plead with you to turn from your sin and to run back to Christ. He's better than whatever you're chasing. But we'd also ask you not to partake in the supper this morning. But rather we would... Encourage you to take this time to pray and ask the Lord to enable you to repent and return to Jesus. We'd also encourage you to connect with a fellow Christian, a brother, sister in Christ who will pray with you, who will help you in your fight against sin. You are not meant to be isolated. You were meant to walk in unity and oneness with Jesus and with other Christians. So I'm going to pray. And when I finish, Caleb... We'll play some music, and when all have been served, the communion elements, I'll return and lead us in taking the supper together. So would you pray with me?